you guys would, to the uh, Gospel of John, uh, chapter 19 is where we're at today. Um, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here. Uh, if I didn't introduce myself yet, I'm glad you guys are here. John chapter 19 is where we're at. We've been basically going to the Gospel of John over this past year. Uh, as Pastor James had mentioned, that we will be starting a brand new series in just about two weeks. So be praying for us for that. I'm really excited about it. I've been spending months uh, preparing. I've been reading lots of theology books, which has been amazing. Like stacks of books, because I don't want to go heretic on you guys. I want to make sure I get this stuff right. But I'm really excited about it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I can't even tell you how pumped I am to even get into the very first one. It's on the Trinity. I don't, as long as I can remember, I don't ever remember teaching just the whole uh, message on the Trinity. I'm super pumped on it because just even in my own personal devotions, just studying about the Trinity, just, I, I feel it's just changed my perception about who God is, His work of salvation, and how He loves us. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. I hope you guys are too. And uh, hopefully at the same time the word theology doesn't come across as stale sterile, dead, and dry. Hopefully, at least, maybe we can pump some back, uh, life back into that Word and uh, do some, see God be glorified through it all. So, John chapter 19 is where we're at. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John. We're done in a couple of weeks. Uh, what we're, what we're going to be taking a look at today specifically is uh, John's account of the crucifixion or the death of Christ. Very important teaching, very important doctrine. It's literally central, what we're going to find, to all of Christian thought, all of Christian teaching, all of Christian understanding literally, literally arises out of these last three chapters that in many ways uh, really encompasses three major theological concepts. One is the death of Christ. The second, which is John 20, the resurrection of Christ. And then John 21 is just this beautiful picture of Jesus restoring uh, this relationship with John, uh, with uh, Peter. And in a lot of ways, I feel it's almost like this bigger foreshadow of Christ's goal from the death and resurrection, which is the restoration of all things. A lot of times as Christians, we stop at the redemption, meaning we stop at the cross and we think that the ultimate goal of God was to save you. That's part of it. It's not the end of it. It's the restoration of all things in which God is glorified over all things. And the beautiful part of all this is God takes redeemed beings and joins them in this beautiful narrative and story of redemption of all things, restoration of all things. God calls us in to be a part of this whole thing, which Jesus is going to say, go into all the world and to preach the Gospel. It's just another way of saying, announce that God is on the move. I was talking with my kids about this last night. We were studying. Usually every Saturday night we study the passage we're going to be studying on Sunday morning. And as we were studying this, I told my girls, I says, it's the gospel that we announce. God's on the move. My daughter, she goes, Dad, it's like when Aslan, right? When he says, Aslan's on the move. I'm like, exactly. That's exactly it. That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to do. He's trying to say, that's the gospel. God is on the move, and he began at the cross. It all began there. Alright? Or that's where it was culminated, a climax. You can actually make an argument and say that it began in eternity past. It's all part of the plan of God. So we're going to take a look at specifically the death of Christ here today. The way I want to do this is I want to basically, we're going to read through the entire chapter. We're going to pause along the way, look at a few items, and then at the end, I want to finish with a few ideas and concepts because what happens is after Jesus died, all followers of Christ were defeated. I mean, they thought, this is, this is a bummer. I mean, everybody's main emotion after the death of Christ was total defeat. It's like, it's over. Man, we had hoped that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. But everything changed the third day, right? I mean, everything changed after the revelation, uh, the, the uh, resurrection. Everything changed. Everybody now was transformed. They, there's a sense of new hope. It was a new day. It was a new beginning. It was a new creation. And God was calling them to follow. That was exactly what happened after Jesus rose again from the dead. So, one of the things that we're going to see 
is that central, at the end of this, is that central to Christian thought was not only the resurrection, I mean, that basically gave life to His death, obviously, but the death of Christ was very meaningful. It was essential of the early Christian teaching. It was essential to the early Christian's understanding of many, many important concepts. And we're going to try to tackle and look at as many of those as we can. I mean, as I was even studying this and looking at this, if you take a, like a, a concordance, you guys don't know what a concordance is, you got to go buy a concordance. That's like an essential tool for studying the Bible. If you look up like death, Christ's uh, suffering, one of the things you'll find is that all throughout the New Testament, Jesus' death is central. So we're going to finish basically taking a look at asking the questions, what did the early believers look at and see as far as importance of the death of Christ? That's what we're going to look at. So with that, let's first jump in and begin to take a look at the chapter. So if you guys don't have your Bibles open already, take a look at John chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Um, and here's what's happening to kind of set the stage. Jesus has been in a trial, and basically depending upon what scholar or commentator you're reading, uh, you're going to get anywhere between three trials to as many as six trials. In reality, I'm just going to deduce it one final thing and just simply say this. There are basically two main trials. One was civil, one was religious. The religious trial had to do with Jesus before Caiaphas and Annas, and these guys were basically the religious leaders. They were the ones bringing the main charges and accusations against Christ. The second trial was the civil trial. This was Jesus before Pilate. So here's what's happening. Jesus is now before Pilate. Pilate's the main guy that has the sole authority to make any decision. Interesting enough that um, literally three years earlier, three years earlier, the Jews had, had all capital punishment rights revoked. In other words, the Jews, up until that point, they were allowed to bring about execution according to their law, capital punishment. So, this is interesting, because if the Jews had the right to kill Jesus, right? If they had the right to kill Jesus, how would the Jews have, would have killed Jesus? How would they have done that? Stone him, right? They wouldn't have crucified him. Jews don't crucify uh, heretics. They stoned them. Jews don't crucify false prophets. They take them outside of the city and they stone them. That's what they would have done. So all of this, again, as we mentioned this last week, I'm going to continue to emphasize this today, is that everything that you're going to see here is all part of a script. It's all a part of God's plan. It's a narrative that God Himself initiated, God started, Jesus wrote, and Jesus not only wrote the script, but He's also the key player in the whole thing. That's very significant, very important to understand that the events that happen in Jesus' life, every miracle, every interaction, every deception, every lie that was made against Him, every accusation that He uh, endured, every cross, I mean the cross that He bore, every insult that was hurled at Him, all of this was literally a part of this divine narrative or script that was written before time. And he's fulfilling it, step by step. That's why you're going to find moments that as we read this, that John periodically is going to say, this is done to fulfill the Scripture. In other words, all of this is literally a part of God's script, written down in the Bible, the Scripture. That's, that's what we're going to see. So with that, we now enter into sort of the trial where Jesus is with Pilate, and he's uh, basically being tried by Pilate. In verse 1, 19, it says this, then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and arrayed him and arrayed him in a purple robe. I'm going to pause it for real quick because we can read over that very quickly and not really have any impact upon us. One of the things that the Romans would do uh, with prisoners is they would uh, they would sometimes just flog people or whip them. And they had basically three levels of whipping: small, medium, large. Right? And and in some believed that Jesus had already had sort of an initial flogging, kind of a very lightweight form of whipping. Uh, others believe that this particular section right here where it says, and they had Jesus flogged, uh, literally is a reference to the most intense form of, um, of death or, or infliction of pain. And usually what they would do is they would have a guy, who's kind of a thug, school dropout, that had the ability to have this whip, and he was the type of guy that would 
literally lay the stripes along the back of the prisoner. Uh, this is called the cat of nine tails, and it was basically a, a, a long stick with, um, at the end of these leather uh, lashes, would have little pieces of bone, little shards of uh, uh, rock, and other forms of sharp, jagged things, so that when the, the point of this was that when the guy was either being interrogated or being punished, that he would basically begin to communicate or confess some of his faults. And so the blows would start out not as harsh, but they would continue incrementally to get harder and harder as the guy would not confess. So the more, uh, the longer it would take for him to confess, the harder the blows would begin to fall. They would typically do this up to 40. The reason why 40 was kind of this number was because typically uh, prisoners would die after lash number 40. And so what would happen is they would lash the back of Jesus and literally, because Jesus was innocent, he had nothing to confess, there was nothing for him to speak out against, he had no offense, he was innocent, guiltless, and pure. You can imagine, from the very get-go, they were beginning to cause the... Uh, lashes or the blows of the whip to come upon Jesus' back with greater intensity from the very beginning. And so by the end, according to some historians, they basically describe what it looked like when people had their back whipped by the cat and nine, cat and nine tails. Uh, typically, some of the descriptions of this would be a guy, in fact, according to one of the histor- history books, is that this guy was basically described as, uh, after the whipping, his back was so lashed and cut open that literally you can see his organs falling out of his body. That's how bad this was. Because what would happen is these things would go around the stomach and rip, and they was intended to literally rip flesh off of the back and leave a person not only in intense pain, but also extremely humiliated. That's exactly, it was, it was its intent to be able to do that to Christ. And so it says that Jesus was flogged, and then they took a crown of thorns and they drilled it into his head, it was just the idea they had these uh, bushes there, these very large thorn bushes with very large, probably between an inch to three inch long uh, thorns. They would have sort of formed this into a crown. It would have just slammed this into his head, obviously causing a lot of pain um, and blood to be dripping down from his face, mingled with sweat. Uh, this was, again, after Jesus had been uh, whipped with the cat of nine tails. Then they put this purple robe on Jesus. And basically, I think this was a form of mockery. Purple was specifically the color only reserved for very rich people or monarchs. And it was a very costly color. If you wear purple today, because uh, it's cheap to make, back then it wasn't cheap to make and only rich people had it. So here they put this purple robe on Christ and it was a way of basically saying the king of the Jews as a form of mockery. And so what happens is from that particular point, it says in verse 3, they came up to him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So basically, in some of the other gospel accounts, they would go up and they would smack Christ, hit him on the face. Some of the other uh, old prophets in Isaiah say that they would literally pluck his beard out. You can imagine the intensity and the pain of having your beard plucked out of your face. And they would do this because imagine, Jesus can't see very well because blood's in his eyes, sweat's in his eyes. Uh, his eyes are probably swollen shut by this particular point. People are walking up to him, taking shots on him, and saying, prophesy, who hit you? If you're the king of the Jews, if you're the Messiah, you certainly know who just hits you. So that's what's happening here in this whole bit of mockery taking place. Verse 4, it says this, And then Pilate went out again and he said to him, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And then Pilate then said, Behold the man. In this particular setting, Pilate basically says, Jesus, he's the man. And here he is wearing his crown of thorns. What's interesting about this, John makes no comment about this, but I'm sure Jews who are familiar with Torah would have made this connection. The thorns were basically the result of the fall. Remember when God created Adam and Eve after Adam and Eve sinned? God told Adam, you'll till the ground, you'll take care of the berry bushes and the fruit trees and all of this. And after they sinned, God says, now because you have sinned, the ground will bear forth thorns. Work's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. 
doing your job is not going to be easy. For women, you're going to give birth and have babies, and it's going to hurt. You're going to bear under the pain of labor. These are the results of the fall. It's interesting that here's Jesus wearing literally the emblem of those almost representing all of those who have fallen by the crown of thorns. And here he is, brought out by Pilate. Pilate does his thorough examination on Jesus and says he's innocent. He's innocent. There's an interesting little bit of a history in terms of the way the Jews would have celebrated Passover. Now remember, all of this is taking place literally during the time of Passover. One of the things that they would do is typically four days earlier, so on Sunday... It was called Lamb Selection Day. This is actually written in the Torah. They would take the lamb. All the families in Israel who would be celebrating the Passover, they would select the lamb. Now this, they would take a lamb that was like a year old. So imagine incredibly cute, snuggly lamb. Alright? Little sheep, the kind that you just want to like hug. Alright? Not kill. That's the kind that you would get. And here's the thing, for the next four days... That cute little lamb would be allowed to run around the house. Your kids would sleep with it. It would basically become a family pet. But what would happen is during those four days, aside from your kids getting attached to it, the father or the leader of the household would examine the lamb. He would examine it. He would study the lamb to make sure there's no um, no cuts or abrasions or uh, disformations on the lamb to make sure that it's without spot and without blemish to make sure it doesn't have any broken legs, or it's not blind, or whatever. Because the idea behind that was, that if you're going to offer a sacrifice to God, you don't offer to God leftovers. Right? You offer Him the best. And the only way to find out if you're offering the best is you examine it. So four days, the lamb would have been selected and then studied. It's interesting to me that here's Jesus, literally under the scrutiny of his contemporaries examining him, and Pilate says, guy's innocent. Judas! I mean, if anybody's got anything to gain, or if anybody's looking for a means to appease his guilty conscience, it would have been Judas. He lived with Jesus three years. I mean, think about this. I don't know if any of you guys have roommates, or you're married, right? All you got to do is sit down with one of those people and say, are there any flaws? I'm sure that they can just whip out a lot, alright? So Judas is with Jesus for three years. I mean, he's already got the money in his hand. He's a rich guy. Thirty pieces of silver. So if there's anybody that should or look for an opportunity to appease his conscience to say, no, 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 I, I, I turned over a bad guy. It would have been Judas. Judas ends up in the other gospel accounts going before the religious leaders, throwing the money on the ground, saying, I've betrayed innocent blood. Jesus was innocent. Which presents part of this whole irony of what's happening here. It's going to become clear in a moment. So here's Pilate, brings him out in verse 5. He says, I see nothing wrong with him. Verse 6 is when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out even louder, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate then said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself to be the Son of God. And then Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again, and then he said to Jesus, he says, where are you from? So Pilate's a little bit tripping out right now. He's like, who is this guy? He's afraid. In the other gospel accounts, we're told that his wife has a dream, right? And his wife's dream is like, listen, have nothing to do with this guy. So Pilate's tripping out. He is not sure what to do. Because the purpose of a guy like Pilate is to do two things. He's to, he's to basically protect the uh, innocent by establishing justice, but he's also to bring about peace. That was the job of any magistrate, any overseer, any ruler in the Roman government. So he's got a problem here because he has a guy who's innocent. Now, if he lets this guy who's innocent go, he has a potential upheaval on his hands. Okay? 
He's already fallen out of favor with Caesar. Some of the other early historians have already described to us that he doesn't have a good relationship with Caesar. Right? Kind of like three-strike rule back then. He's got about two and a half strikes already. So one more strike and Caesar and, and Pilate's out. Pilate's out. So he's got a problem here. Does he betray someone who's innocent and turn him over to die? Or does he see an insurrection on his hand and upheaval going on within his reign that will ultimately bring about Caesar's frustration, probably even his own head. So that's what's going on here. So it says right here, later on about verse 8, and the Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and then he entered in the headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you, have not, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And the authority to crucify you? And then Jesus said to him, You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered uh, me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews, they cried out all the more, If you release this man, then you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, they brought Jesus out and they sat down on the judgment seat in the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation, the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And then they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And then Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So we deliver them over to be crucified. So here's Pilate. He's in a very difficult situation. He's got the religious leaders literally manipulating him. They're manipulating him. So what they're doing, they're completely taking control of the circumstance and they're whispering in his ear saying, listen, we know that you're not in a good relationship with Caesar. If you let this guy go, you are in essence saying that there is another king aside from Caesar. It's not going to like that. So their suggestion is, let's just kill him. So here's Pilate in a dilemma. What to do? Do I kill Jesus, create an uproar, or do I just go on with injustice? He, he's at a place where he, does, he ultimately goes against conscience. Other gospel accounts tells us he wipes his hands, says, try to wipe his hand of this offense, and it ends up handing Jesus over to be crucified. Then in about verse 17 it says, So he went out bearing his own cross to the place that is called the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And the Pilate wrote an inscription, and he put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic would have been the language that the Jews would have spoken. Latin was the language of Caesar, and Greek was the official trade language. If you trade, if you did any type of bartering or buying and selling within the entire uh, empire, you would have spoken Greek. Verse 21, it says, So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered and said, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and his tunic. And the tunic was seamless, woven one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, Let us not tear, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. What I want to make sure that we don't pass over is this little simple statement where it says, and they took Jesus out and they crucified him. I realize a lot of times in in modern day Christianity, for one, we don't like the concept of a gruesome religion or the sense of blood. It's something that we tend to have an aversion we don't like to talk about it. It's something that is offensive. Right? But what I want to make sure that we, we don't miss is what crucifixion was. I don't want to sanitize it for you guys. I don't want to somehow clean it up, make it look nice and pretty so that it can be presentable to a bunch of 21st century people who 
wear the name Christian. To make sure that we understand the weight of what Jesus had gone through. Crucifixion basically was one of the most horrific forms of capital punishment ever invented. Alright? It was not invented by the Romans, however it was basically perfected by the Romans. Alright? It was a form of capital punishment that was ultimately meant to completely belittle and remove and destroy any dignity any human being would have. That was the point of it. And the way they would typically do this is they, aside from uh, causing them to carry their own crossbeam out to the place where they would be crucified, Jesus would have been taken out there uh, as they would take the prisoner. They would oftentimes, within Jesus' case, they would have nailed him to the cross. So oftentimes some of the old pictures that you see of Jesus or old paintings would have the nail go through here, probably more likely right around here, so that it wouldn't have ripped the hand of Jesus off based upon his weight there sustained on the cross. They would take his arms and they would nail them to either crossbeam. And as they would do that, it would ultimately stretch out his body like such on the cross. They would take his legs and either they would put the legs together or aside next to each other. And they would sometimes nail them or tie them. In Jesus' case, they had nailed them to the cross. They nailed his feet. They nailed his hands or his arms, uh, his, his wrists to the cross. And there was Jesus on the cross. Typically what would happen is a part of the death sentence of crucifixion, most people would die by asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. Because when a person would be hung on a cross like this, you can imagine all of the weight of the body was literally being sustained by the arms. But when the weight of the body was pulling down, that would cause tremendous pressure upon uh, your, your lungs. You wouldn't be able to breathe. Your diaphragm would not be able to open and close. And thus, you wouldn't be able to breathe. And so, in order for the person to either breathe while he's resting like this, he would have to push up. And as he would push up, it would relieve some of the pressure and some of the pain so he could actually take a breath of air. And he would continue to do this, oftentimes for hours, resting until he couldn't breathe anymore, pushing himself back up so he can breathe again. All the while, his back would have been scraping along the backside of this. Um, typically, when people would be crucified according to Roman uh, rules, they would oftentimes crucify them on a main street. I know based upon some hymnology and some other uh, uh, pictures and paintings, it's the picture that Jesus was crucified on a hill. I don't think that's very accurate. I think, according to most historians, Jesus probably would have been crucified on a main street. All right, Imagine uh, um, Foothill Boulevard and Santa Rosa. Imagine downtown right where Starbucks is at, or right where Jamba Juice is at. That would be the ideal place to crucify somebody, in Romans' perspective. It was the idea of saying that, listen, when the inscription was read over the head of the person that was the offender, anybody that was coming into the, into the city for business or traveling, but especially during this particular time, because this was Passover, so there would have been millions of Jews there, some of which who were pilgrims for the very first time in the city of Jerusalem. They, it was a, their way, a Roman's uh, way of basically saying, don't mess with us. Anybody who messes with Rome, this is what happens to you. That was their way of saying, don't mess with us. It was a very uh, graphic display of saying, anybody who spars with Rome finds themselves hung up on a cross in a horrible way. Now, as the person would be hanging on the cross, oftentimes we're told, especially in Jesus' case, this would have been during the middle of the day. Now, Israel is in desert. So you can imagine the, uh, the sun, or the heat of the sun, beaming down upon Christ. Uh, we're told in some of the other prophetic literature that Jesus, his tongue cleaved to the top of his mouth. You can see his bones. Sometimes as people were hanging on the cross, their arms would fall out of joint. You can imagine excruciating pain. In fact, the word crucifixion, we get the English word excruciating from. So crucifixion was no small thing. While a person was hanging there on the cross, fighting to breathe, because it was on a main thoroughfare, people were literally walking by. If you're walking into the city of Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and you had your family with you, you got your little kids, maybe little five-year-old kids, walking by. Your kids are fixated on the cross. This guy who is innocent, who's done nothing, who's horribly ripped to pieces 
You can imagine the shame that people are thinking and going on in their minds and trying to protect the minds and the hearts and the eyes of their little kids. People are walking by. They're hurling insults at Jesus. Or insults at Jesus. They're spitting on Christ. One of the other things that Romans would do is they would oftentimes strip a body naked. So here on the cross, you would have Jesus who was probably naked. His body would have been a big bloody mess. People would walk by and make fun of uh, males' anatomical uh, you know, body parts. They would spit on you because a person's body was literally hanging like this for hours. Oftentimes because of the arms going out of joint and other portions of the body going out of joint, portions of the body would literally like fall asleep. Pins and needles in that sense where it just there was poor circulation of blood. And what would happen is because portions of your body would literally fall asleep, it was not uncommon for prisoners to defecate all over their bodies. To literally just defecate, to lose it. They would be at the bottom of the cross, would have been a big pile of blood, sweat, and defecation. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. That was Jesus on the cross. That's it. When you read that verse, and they took him out and crucified him, that was Christ. That was the picture. Here's what happens as it goes on. It says in about verse 5, and so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and Pilate, uh, as we move on from that, we already read that. I don't know why I read that again. But it goes on about verse 22, and then the soldiers had crucified and they parted his garments. So literally at the foot of the cross, you've got the religious leaders scoffing Jesus. And the other gospel accounts are basically saying, hey, you saved other people, just save yourself. And aside from that, you've got the guards. These guys are literally playing a game at the foot of the cross. Playing a game as to seeing who's going to get the garments. But again, John makes the point, all of this was done to fulfill the Scripture. Verse 25, it says, So standing by the cross was Jesus, standing by the cross of Jesus was His mother, and His mother's sister, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw His mother and His disciples, whom He had loved, probably a reference to John, standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from the hour the disciple took to, took her to his own home. So in this picture, Jesus literally, in the midst of torment and pain and suffering and loss of all dignity, still thinking about his mom. And he says to John, the beloved apostle, Can you take care of my mom? Take care of my mom. It goes on and says in verse 29, 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he then says, It is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. This is John's way of basically describing Jesus released his soul or his spirit, and he died. But what I want you to notice, the way John writes, is, is John's going to use these little phrases. I've been pulling this all throughout the entire uh, Gospel of John. John writes in hyperlinks, right? We've talked about this a lot. He writes in these like little phrases that are like hyperlinks, like a phrase or a word that connects a whole train of Old Testament thought. One of these, I believe, very clearly, is this little phrase in which Jesus says, it is finished. Okay, I want you to do something with me real quick. Go back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see what happens here. Genesis chapter 1, at the very last day of the original creation, when God created all things, God created mankind and animals and everything else, on the very last day of that first creation, which happened to be Friday. Same day. It says this, Verse 31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, and it was the sixth day. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. The heavens and the earth were finished. This is really significant, because what's going to happen is Jesus dies on a Friday, the last day of the original creation. He, like a seed, is going to be planted in the ground. 
on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, Jesus will rest in the grave. And on the first day of the new week, John starts out chapter 20 by saying this, now on the first day of the week, John is using Old Testament language to describe or to link the minds of New Testament readers that what's happening here is not just something that's all happenstance. That God has scripted everything out. Just like the original creation that had fallen prey to oppression, to sin, and ultimately to judgment. Was climaxed and culminated there on the cross whereby God was on the verge of a new creation. Where the original creation ended in a garden. The new creation, John's going to tell us, began in a garden. Where the original creation ended because of a one man, Adam, sinned. The new creation begins because one man, Jesus, was righteous. This is all a part, guys, of a divine story. This is so huge that God says, as a part of the announcement of the Gospel, join me in this. Follow me. Follow me. It's part of the announcement. God's alive. He hasn't forsaken creation. He hasn't forsaken sinful people. In fact, God has so not forsaken sinful people, He had gone all the way to evidence this, to ultimately go to the cross to say, this is how much I have loved my creation, even though it has done nothing but belittle me. Then he goes to the cross. And from the cross begins a whole new creation that God's about to establish. Verse 31 says this, Since it was a day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the picture is this, is that when a person was hanging on the cross, remember the main source of life for someone hanging on the cross was their legs, right? Without legs or without a stool to push off of, they wouldn't be able to breathe. And so to be able to break the legs would completely remove the ability to breathe, therefore the guy would die within a matter of minutes by suffocation. So what happens, it says, uh, the religious leaders had gone and they said, can we get rid of these dead, dying bodies, because uh, we're about to celebrate Shabbat. We don't want dead bodies outside of our city. Can you at least honor us in that? Pilate says, fine, let's have the legs broken. And so do they go to each of the guys, and when they come to Jesus, they realize that he's already been dead. In verse 34, it says, but one of the soldiers came, and it says, and they pierced his side with a spear, and at once there was blood and water. In verse 35, I love this. I believe this is John speaking here, and he says this, he who saw it, bore witness. His testimony is true. Speaking in the third person. His testimony is true that you also might believe. For these things took place so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture that says they will look upon Him whom they have pierced. Think about this. Up until three years earlier, the Jews did not have, or the Jews had the ability to put to death people they didn't like. That broke their law. So they couldn't stone the guy. They couldn't stone Jesus. It had to have been run through the system of Rome, which meant crucifixion. John says, listen, I, I saw there. I sat there and I saw the spear go into the side of Jesus, not to break a bone, because Passover lambs were not allowed to have any spot or blemish or broken bones. Jesus was the Passover lamb. This is all part of this narrative. The script that God established, which Jesus lived out. So what's happening. The last few verses, it says this in verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, was one of the religious leaders who was part of what was called the council, part of the Sanhedrin. So he was one of the main religious leaders involved with all that was happening here even though he stood against or opposed to the overall uh, leadership's decision to put Jesus to death, 
Joseph was one of the good guys, even though he was kind of like stealth, right? He was stealth. He was like some of you guys, like ninja Christians, right? But but God saved him. God had grace. He came out and actually gets a good name because rather than hiding as a Christian, uh, he comes out and he just recognizes, listen, I, I blew it. And the least I can do is bury the body of Christ. That's what he does. Verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and spices and a burial custom, according to the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus in the tomb. So here's Jesus in the tomb waiting the final day of resurrection, in which he's going to be resurrected within a short period of time. Okay, so here's what's happened. Jesus, the would-be Messiah, was crucified as a would-be Messiah. He's dead. All of Jesus' followers have lost heart. He's dead. We know this because one of the occasions, Jesus, as he rises again from the dead, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, he's hanging out, talking to a couple guys, He's like, you guys look really bummed. What's wrong? He's like, we're bummed because this guy that we were hanging out with following, we thought he was going to be the anointed one of David, the Messiah. So we thought he was going to be. But, he was crucified. That was the consensus of all of the disciples. Okay? I mean, even though Mary and Martha uh, probably had the keenest insight out of all of them, I don't know, maybe they got it. Alright? I mean... Kudos to the women, all right? They were the first one at the grave. So that's one for your team, all right? Good for you. But the point I'm trying to make is that the reality is that most of the believers that followed Christ up until this point did not have faith or did not believe or had lost all heart and hope as to anything beyond the grave until the resurrection. And what happened is after the resurrection... They begin to re-examine the death of Christ and ask the question, why did He die? What was the purpose of that? What was God accomplishing? Paul the Apostle is going to later come along and he's going to say, listen, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. It's as if to say that God has provided this blueprint Provided this blueprint, and it's for us to be, by way of responsibility, to work this out. How does this fit into our world, into our culture? Paul is going to say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't have the right to rewrite it. We can't rewrite the script or reestablish the foundation. That's done once and for all, never to be repeated. But we are like people with this blueprint trying to figure out how does this work? That's how the early Christians were. What did Jesus' death accomplish for us? What was His purpose? Why was His resurrection so significant? These were the questions they asked. The most amazing thing is that the Bible is so filled with answers as to what the death of Jesus accomplished. All right, we're limited on time, but I'm going to try to go through as many of these as I can just to give you a flavor as to how the first century believers felt and saw and understood the significance of the death of Jesus. Why it was so central. Here's one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Very clearly, the idea behind this is that the death of Christ actually absorbed the wrath of God. You say, why was God angry? God was angry because ultimately in our lives, what had happened was that we basically became people that belittle God. We shun God. I mean, at the very least, we live our lives in ways that don't acknowledge His mercies and kindness and grace and everything from the very breath we breathe to the intelligence we have to the looks that you might or might not possess to the benefits we have of even living in a free country. I mean, at the very least, we don't live with thankful hearts. At the very worst, at 
the very worst, we live in such a way where we have no regard for God. We live in such a way as where we think we are the masters of our own destinies. And that belittles God. So there's a sense where God is angry. He's angry at the fact of our belittling of Him. And so what happens is the New Testament writers write something like this in Galatians 3 verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse. That there was a curse that came as a result of our sin. We, we were cursed, living under this curse. So he says this, Christ became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every man who hangs on the tree. So the early believers looked at this and said, Jesus was on a tree. Why? We know that the Old Testament passages teaches that everyone who's on a tree is cursed. Why was Jesus on a tree? Why was He cursed? And they worked this out and they understood this from the Word of God that He actually became a curse for us. He bore our curse. Here's another example of this. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says this, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation, big word, I know you guys use it often. All right? It's a word that literally just means to appease or to satisfy. Okay? And it's, here's what he's saying, is that God put forth the Son Jesus, that through His blood, it's, it's death, through His death, through His blood, He satisfied God's wrath. Jesus' death was done to satisfy God's wrath. And He goes on, to be received by faith. How do we get it? How do we obtain it? How do we obtain that status before God whereby His wrath against us has been absorbed? The Bible says, by faith. We trust Jesus. We trust Him. He goes on and he finishes this. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. So you've got to understand this. God does not just simply forgive. God propitiates. It's a difference here. If a judge on the stand says to a repeated sex offender slash murderer, ah, have a great day, I feel good, I forgive you, have a great one. That's injustice. So therefore God can't, sometimes people are saying, why can't God just forgive everybody? The reason? God's righteous. He's not unjust. He can't. So how does God deal with it? God deals with that perplexing circumstance by saying, I will enact the full wrath that I have against my Son. And on the cross, He will absorb the wrath, the judgment, and I will be satisfied. And Paul says, the way that we obtain that same standing is by faith, trusting in Jesus. Here's another one. Um, we have reconciliation to God. So the early believers saw the death of Christ as being the means that brought about reconciliation with God. Reconciliation is this idea that we're at odds. right? We're at odds with God. We're born basically at odds with God. We're, do you know that we're actually born like religious people? You know that? We are born. Like our default mode as human beings is religiosity. Right? It's how we live. It's our default mode. If you do nothing in life, if you do nothing about God, you will always be a religious person. End of story. We will always look for ways to somehow get God to like us. But we're at odds with God. We're in need of reconciliation. And here's what the death of Christ does. Take a look at uh, Romans chapter 5. It's all about this. I'm not going to have time to go through it and read through all of it, but I want you to get the, the flavor of this. What he's going to say is that in Adam... All have been made sinners. It's this idea of original sin. All of us have sinned. Our forefather Adam sinned. Therefore, we kind of are in this family of sinners. Therefore, we basically start off at odds with God. Okay? But through one man, sin entered the world. We're all doomed, right? But through another man, Jesus, and His righteous acts, is the opportunity to be saved. To be reconciled to God. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this, that we are once children of wrath, but God has reconciled us back to Himself. 
Here's another example of the way that early believers viewed the death of Jesus there on the cross. Uh, verse 24 of Mark, chapter 14. It's this idea, remember when Jesus at the Last Supper, he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of a new covenant. It was this idea, Jews understood things from God by way of covenant. This was God's interaction with people. And God comes into the scene and says, listen, I'm going to make a deal with you, but it's a deal whereby I will be the sole proprietor of everything. I'll take care of it all. All you need to do is trust me. So here's Jesus. He comes on the scene, takes the cup, and he says, this cup speaks of my blood or my death. But it's the blood of a brand new covenant whereby I'm calling you to join me, to be reconciled to me. There's another way they view the death of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. This is great. If you guys want, want you to turn there real quick. We're almost done. You guys are doing great. Just a couple more ones I want to take a look at. This demonstrates that early believers viewed the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in a beautiful way. They viewed it as really being the display of the depth of God's love and grace to sinners. So if you ask an early believer, hey, what, what, what did Jesus' death on the cross accomplish for you? I mean, why was it so special to you? Why are you moved by it? Why are your affections raised when you consider Jesus dying on the cross? Here's what they would say, something like this. Probably what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will die. One would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Christ died while we're still belittling Him. So the question is, who does this emphasize? Does this emphasize the greatness of the one saved or the one doing the saving? Who does this emphasize? It emphasizes the one who saves, right? See, the crazy thing is in American Christianity today, we somehow made Christianity all about almost akin to a self-help program. Trust Jesus, brother, and you'll have a great marriage. And trust Jesus and you'll get spinners on your car wheels. It's great. Right? You know, Jesus will help you. He's like my co-pilot, right? And this idea of like, somehow, Jesus is like an additive to make my life a little bit more flavorful. It's not the cross. The cross is about God being great. Us being sinners. Here's another example of this whole concept. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. So just based on John 3.16, what is the condition of our standing prior to belief in Jesus? What is it? Perishing. He says if you believe in the cross, in what Jesus did, you won't perish. If you trust God's rich love. Here's one more great one. I love this. It's one of my favorites. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. I love this. If you hear anything this morning, let this be the one phrase you hear. According to the riches of His grace. How are we redeemed? How are we forgiven? Because I prayed a prayer. Because I go to church. Because I read out of the King Jimmy Bible. Because I was homeschooled. Right? Because my parents raised me on a farm and we like lived according to good morality. Because I'm Republican. I mean, for goodness sakes, guys. How, how do we receive favor from God? It's by the riches. His grace. Paul's answer to God's love for us is not because we are lovable. Damn the teaching that says God loves you because you're good. We sin. That teaching turns Christianity on its head. It says there's something worthwhile in you. God loves you. The gospel says there's nothing worthwhile in you. But God is a fountain of overflowing greatness. And out of the riches 
of His goodness. He gives kindness and grace. Guys, this is about God and what He's done for us. Last few ones is this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So He's saying this. The death of Christ gives us a clear conscience before God. A clear conscience before God. The Bible speaks about our conscience before Christ is being defiled. The Old Testament had all sorts of means to try to take care of our sin. But there's one thing that the sacrifices couldn't do. It couldn't remove a defiled conscience. Some of you guys know exactly what this is about. You sin, you fail, you have sex with your girlfriend, you feel really bad, you lost. Whatever it is that you do, put on the list. You feel really bad. That feeling bad is the Bible termed defiled. The death of Christ on the cross was meant to remove our defilement. It's amazing what God has done. Okay, last one. I promise I'm done. Is this? I got a ton of these things, but I'm going to just stop. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says this. He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, with Him, graciously give us all things? So here's what he's saying. Paul says, listen, in considering the fact that God is so great, so loving, so deep in the extent of His love, that He would not even withhold His own Son, whom He loves... Paul's basically like, the extent of God's love is so massive. But God took care of the big thing. How much more would God take care of the small things in your life? Early Christians look at this and says, if God gave me a son, then everything else in my life that I need to live godly, He'll also provide. This is not a blank check for wealth and health. Okay? But this is a promise that God will do everything in your life and give you everything for your life for your greatest good. And the greatest good in God's eyes is conformity to His Son. You know what I love about this? This is so practical. I'm a pastor, alright? I'm not a pastor because I'm a great speaker. Alright? I know of a lot of other better speakers. I'm not a pastor because some of you are like, yes, finally he recognizes it. Um, I'm not a pastor because uh, I'm not a great administrator. I mean, I never went to college. All right, it's kind of funny. The ir- irony here is I'm a pastor in a college town with a lot of college people, and I've never been to college. All right, my dad's a professor. That's the irony. All right, I- I'm a pastor for one reason, because God, for some reason, felt that this is the best way I can conform Brian Stupar into the image of my beloved son. is by when he feels overwhelmed and intimidated and insecure because of his inabilities. And when he feels incapable of serving people and loving them and taking good care of them by shepherding and, and serving them, He will crawl to me and beg for help and mercy and I will respond in joy. And I will conform into the image of my son. So I'm a dad. So I'm a husband. That's why you're a mom. Why some of you are bankers or teachers or students at this place in your life. It's because God is using this in your life for Christ's conformity. That he who would not even spare his own son, how much more will he give you all things to conform you to the image of Christ? Guys, God's not finished with you. Cling to Jesus. Love the cross. That's why early believers felt the cross being central to all things. I hope we do too. I hope we don't just simply see it as an old rugged cross on a hill far away. I hope we cherish it, that we stand in awe of it, that we, with the early believers, view it as being the center of everything in the Christian life. 
I'm going to pray. We're going to respond with some worship. It's a little bit late. If you want to leave, you can leave. That's fine. Um, we're going to finish with a few songs of worship. I'm going to come back up and pray, and we'll dismiss you guys. Um, we're also going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. Um, we have the little donation boxes in the back, but this is a way for those who love Jesus and love this fellowship want to be able to help out and serve. And um, If you're one of our guests, don't feel any obligation to give. Um, and we're going to respond also by praying. If you're here and you need someone to pray for you, you've got some issues that you're going through in life, you just need someone to encourage you, we're going to have some people over here to pray for you. I'm going to pray right now. They're going to worship a little bit and we'll dismiss you guys. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you had accomplished. And we just surrender our hearts to you right now. And we invite you, Lord, to come and just make yourself known in our midst, even here. Um, right now, God, just uh, be glorified in the gathering, in the singing, and the praying, and the giving of your saints.